Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Bear. Our life is frittered away by detail. This is what Henry David Thoreau wrote in Walden, the book he started on July 4th, 1845, as a new declaration of independence. Thoreau set out to write a book about the circumstances that define our lives, and to live deliberately and to think honestly that there's no other choice left. This book is all about the outside, about setting up a house in the woods, about how to build it, how many nails you need, how many planks of board, how many peas you're going to sow to harvest in the fall. And yet it is also a book about how to settle a continent that had been ravaged by the genocide of the American Indians and chattel slavery. Thoreau gives us the idea of civil disobedience. He didn't pay his taxes to protest slavery, although he lived in Massachusetts. And he gave us a book to think about how to live in simplicity, independence, magnanimity, and trust. But it's not a theoretical book. It's an incredibly practical book. And one of the most interesting things is to think about the statements that he constantly makes that move from the metaphorical to the practical. Morning is when I am awake and there's dawn in me. Morning, of course, is a time of dawn when the sun rises, but this dawn in me is something very different. It is my capacity to transform my life, to live the life I really want to live, and not the live life other people think I should live. So Thoreau is the environmental prophet of our country, the first one to really think about the environment as a philosophical as well as a political problem. I spoke with Benjamin Rees, who's professor at Emory University. He's the Samuel Candler Dobbs professor of English and the author of several books. One is called The Showman and the Slave, and the other one is called Wild Nights, how we tamed, how taming sleep created our restless world. In that book, he talks about Henry David Thoreau's famous cabinet, Walden, and how sleeping 
the way we are supposed to do it today, eight hours every night with an alarm clock, put your phone away, get to rest, get up eight hours later refreshed, is a construction of the modern world that doesn't really help us. Welcome to Think About It. I'm really happy to have Professor Benjamin Rees here today. Currently, you're in Atlanta right now and at yeah. Emory yeah. University, right? Yes. So first of all, thank you for making time, which is, of course, one of Henry David Thoreau's <laughs> major ideas. How do we make time, create time out of our busy days? We're distracted. We have so many things to do. And then sometimes we come to rest at Walden, one of the books that many of us were assigned and many of us are still being assigned as one of the foundational texts of America. I was curious if you remember when you were first introduced to this book, or do you remember when you first read it and why it was given to you? Yeah, I read a chapter of it in high school and it made absolutely no impression on me whatsoever, other than it was something I had to slog through and comprehend. I read it again in graduate school. And I was really struck by the beauty, just the sheer descriptive beauty of the writing, what it's like to be out in the middle of a pond listening in spring when no one else is around and watching and observing and sensing what is happening to you and your mind and your thoughts. And I read this in the context of a graduate seminar when, of course, I was worried about all sorts of things, my future, whether I was going to have something smart to say about the text, but really... To encounter the book, you just have to stop and pause and reflect and observe. And it really had a kind of magical power for me. That was my first real encounter with it. So your first real, which was a second encounter, as if you had passed by a lake once in your youth and you thought, oh, a lake, too cold yeah. to swim in, not frozen enough to skate. What am I going to do with this thing? Moving on. Which is, in some ways, he says, you come to rest for a moment, and then suddenly so many things are revealed that this little pond near Concord, Massachusetts, it's so much more than what you think when you pass by. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing to actually go to the pond because it is, in my mind, knowing the book, it's taken on this kind of mythical dimension. But it's a very small pond, right. not that much bigger than a puddle. It's quite unremarkable. There are thousands of ponds like it. I spent summers in Western Massachusetts by a lake that was a lot bigger and kind of more impressive than Walden Pond. It makes the sort of acts of attentiveness, I think, all the more remarkable given the small scale of the place. I was struck rereading at this time that he sets out, so he chronicles these two years he spends there in 1845. He dispenses with the second year and says it pretty much repeated the first year. Right. Then the whole book is sort of settling in, thinking how we live, where we live, what's around us, these are all practical questions where you, when we yeah. were setting up the interview, what room do we use? Where do we set our computers up? How do we put the microphone the right way? All of this is practical and really not what philosophy deals with. But he turns that into the most important questions are all those questions. Is the lake big? Is it small? You thought you went to a big lake as a boy. That was an awesome lake. This little Walden Pond, not so big. And he finds the entire world somehow revealed in this small space. It is interesting to think about it as a practical book. And he's an empiricist and a very practical person. You know, while he was there, he did take a few small jobs as a surveyor. He enjoyed measuring things and figuring out and sounding bottoms of lakes. One of the practical bits of knowledge that he dispenses with in writing Walden is how to figure out how deep a lake is. 
and he does a few different experiments with it about, you know, finding the two points that are widest and the two points that are longest and finding the intersection. And he shows that, you know, every time you do it, that's the deepest point, right? And the whole first chapter of the book is called Economy, and it's about, you know, well, what did I need to do this? How much money did I have to spend to buy the nails? Where did I get my axe? You know, where did I get, how did I get my board to build a house? What furniture did I take with me? What kind of seeds was I going to need to make a garden that would sustain me through the year? How much did they cost? You know, so how little do I really need to spend to sort of whittle it down to the bone? And there are little charts that show, you know, exactly how much he spent. And then when he took some of the produce to market, how much he make on it. So it is a very, very practical book. Thoreau, of course, is a transcendentalist, and he's often cast as being in the spell of Emerson. And you can find the afterglow of Emerson's writing in so much of Thoreau. But he really was also a pragmatist and an empiricist while he was there. He was measuring and recording almost everything that happened to him. A lot of that didn't make it into Walden, but it's been so important for a lot of people to look back at the records that he kept about when did the leaves come out in spring? When did flowers start blooming? And he would just make these very meticulous observations, some of which are now of great deal of interest to climate scientists who've gone back and looked at, to see, you know, have the seasons really shifted since the rose time. So there's an incredible amount of just information that he includes in this book, which makes the figurative language and the poetic expression all the more, all the more remarkable. And it's interesting you said climate scientists look at it today and say he chronicled for several years when certain flowers go into bloom and then if compared it to today, whether it's later, early on the season. So they have now characterized him as a climate scientist who produces useful right. knowledge, who was 100 years ahead of us, who also then had this idea. He starts a book that's really, it starts on July 4th, and it's another declaration of independence. It's how to settle this continent called America, inhabited by native peoples, which he acknowledges and recognizes. And the fundamental challenge of inventing a new world with a new language for new people. So there's this huge ambition. And I think when it goes into this prefigures climate debates today, it turns the book into a, something a little bit too practical almost, because Thoreau is very worried that everything becomes too practical right away, and then you dispense with it. You don't think about it enough. You just use it as a tool. You move on. There's a sentence when he says he borrows an axe from somebody else, and he says, I returned it sharper than he had given it to me. Yeah. And it's kind of, I think, what happens with these basic concepts. Economy, you think, well, you have a little house, you have a bed, you sleep, you have a pail, you have a bucket, you have a cup. You don't think about these things. But somehow when he turns them over in his mind, you become aware, oh, I have a cup. Why do I have 25 coffee cups? What is yeah. he trying to do? So economy is a word almost for what we call philosophy. It's not economics, calculating. And at some point, Thoreau says something like, if you learn about economy, you're not an economical person. You have book knowledge. You have abstract knowledge. So the measurement, and it's not just, I want to know how big the lake is. I want to know what it means to me that the lake is big or small. Who am I relation to the world? I really do think he carries both in his mind at the same time. Mm -hmm. The more self-reflective qualities of the writing about, you know, encountering the lake as a character and finding his own face in it and finding in the bottom of the lake the idea that we all have our own unsounded bottoms of expression, right? He finds everything in nature corresponding to some kind of 
spiritual or psychological aspect of himself. He really never leaves behind the kind of calculations and the, the attempt to grapple with the raw materials that are around him. And he doesn't find any other way toward these poetic expressions than through what we really might call science. I mean, I think he thought of himself in some ways as much as an empiricist and somebody doing a kind of scientific investigation as he was an expressive writer. And that's part of what's so fascinating to me about his writing, is how it works in both of these ways. Right, and it breaks with a romantic idea that nature contains some sublime or divine presence that we can't grasp. And he says, oh yeah, I can measure it, or I can yeah. crack it open, or I can watch the ants or these birds and, and follow the loon for pages. He follows this loon who keeps on hiding from him. And <laughs> what is he searching for? And he searches for this bird, which appears and then disappears. And you're sort of taken on this quest to say, I can understand the world, actually. I can actually make sense of it. And it's not going to be some hidden metaphysical meaning outside of Plato's cave that we'll never get to. He said, it's here for us. Right. Well, I think that, you know, maybe one way to think about it is that, you know, if you think about the two figures of speech, a metonym and a metaphor, he's a metonymic thinker. Right. What he is reaching for is a part of a whole. And he never quite the whole is what is ineffable. But to describe the part, you know, the metonym of saying that, you know, describing a worker as a hand, you know, the hand is a part of the whole, whereas the metaphor is comparing two things that are unlike. It's really important for him that he describes that hand, that he describes in minute, precise detail that almost strips away metaphor and figurative language to really see, to really observe, and to measure, and to calculate. That is a step toward describing something much larger. When he calculates and measures, and then there's a moment when he turns almost away from his own insight, and he says, we calculate, we measure, but then these people, they only look at the cranberries as bushel to be carted to market and jammed, and I ignore them. So he says, we are as Americans, seizing this continent, sizing it up, seeing what we can use, it's given to us in a way, but we become, and he uses this word at some point, we become subjected to it, enslaved to this new mentality that everything can be commodified. So there's this yeah. double move. So we can count all these things. He counts literally the beans, the peas, what <laughs> he harvests and what he plants and how many nails he had and what was taken and stolen. And then he says, if you get too invested in this, you have lost yourself again. Yeah, well, you know, the book is a warning, too, about materialism, about commodification, about addiction to speed, to various substances. And, you know, at one point he says that we need to take care not to become tools of our tools. But it's not an anti-technological book in a way. I mean, there's a great deal of appreciation for the railroad, for industry, for what he saw as a kind of increasing precision of life under new economic arrangements. Right. And he doesn't want to cast himself as a dropout. You know, he says at the end of the story, it's very important. I didn't seek to escape the 19th century. I just wanted to stand at a little bit of a remove from it and then come back. You started with this image of him returning the tool sharper than it was when he borrowed it. You know, it's a work of social critique, obviously and powerfully, but it's not one of rejection. It's not one ultimately that says... You know, we need to drop out where we need to overturn everything. We need to step aside and be reflective of the world that feels out of control to us and then come back to it with a sense of our place in it and with sharper tools to understand, you know, how we're going to live in it. 
that's really interesting because the book, I think, a lot of times is considered as one of those drop out, an outsider, remove yourself from society. It's a very male book in a way. Go find yourself a little cabin in the woods. And- it's also a very white book in a lot of ways, too. There's been some interesting essays written on African-American nature writing that say that, you know, this kind of experiment would not be liberating for any African-American person living then or now, right, to say that you're out in a rural environment living on your own terms. You become a figure of suspicion. One can qualify it in these ways, but go ahead. And that scholarship, actually, to stay with that, people have also researched that the people he encounters, so there's a few free men, free people of color living there at this moment. And he addresses the issue of slavery several times. So there's a way of standing outside of a society that in his other writings, and he will say, this is a government that is corrupt because it endorses slavery, starts the Mexican-American War. There are all these oppositions. The idea of civil disobedience comes from him. So people have always taken him as a figure who removes himself from a system you don't subscribe to. He famously didn't pay taxes. But to go back then, he has people living in the woods around Walden, who don't quite fit in, who are sort of outsiders to this society establishing itself as dominant, not quite established yet. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about. It's actually a very social book for something that, as you say, has often been taken as the work of a hermit who's sort of trying to drop out. And he talks about when he built his cabin, he talks about all the furniture that he either assembles or brings with him. And it's very important that he has three chairs, Right. Because that's this, for him the sort of ideal number of people to be communicating with one or two others at a time. And his cabin actually has to be large enough that there can be some space between the chairs because he doesn't want people right up in his face. He needs a little bit of distance to preserve the, you know, the I and the thou relationship. So he has friends who come and visit him. And there are some conversations about his some passages describing his conversations with other writers and thinkers of the time. But many of the most really interesting and poignant conversations that he has are with people who are either kind of vagabonds living in the woods. He describes a simple minded pauper who has spent some time in an almshouse There's a woodchopper who he also describes as being a simple-minded person. You get a sense, one of the things that's poignant about those episodes is that this is the period when virtually every state was building insane asylums to house such people and viewing them with increasing suspicion and concern and medicalizing the issues. But he records conversations with these characters who walk in and out of the woods as being some of the most satisfying ones he's ever had because they are stripped of all of the kind of social mannerisms and conventions of the people in town that he can get to a kind of a kind of pure you know, there's some romanticization of simple-mindedness that goes on in these in these encounters. But at the same time, there's also really an appreciation of the fundamental humanity that others seem to be ignoring or forgetting. And then also, you know, brief conversations and even histories of some of the free people of color who have lived there, one of whom is a fugitive slave who he harbors and helps move on to the Underground Railroad. So, yeah, there's a lot of life, a lot of human life in the book. And I think these people, these characters, as you're saying, America at this point is starting to institutionalize where to put them, what to do with them. They're present. And then America at the same time invents itself as saying we're breaking from the old world, from the old habits, from the old kind of stifling customs of culture and social norms that 
Thoreau says, don't work for us anymore. We want to be free. We want to think for ourselves. And then at the same time, people who are really free, meaning kind of unprotected, exposed by society, we cast them into another place. So he's in between these places. And I think it's right. He kind of keeps company in the cabin and he has visitors all the time. And he says, I left for the day and I knew people had come by and I could tell who came by. I never had a problem. No one ever stole a thing from me. But it's kind of an open door policy because (laughs) it's stripped of all these pretensions that he has to be someone for anyone. Yeah, I just live among you here. I'm settling in my little cabin. Of course, I have the privilege and means to do so, but I don't do much more than that. Yeah, and I think a part of what enables that is the sense of stripping oneself of material possessions, which he feels are encumbrances. That as soon as you have a big house and a lot of stuff in it, you become answerable to it all, and you become guarded in your relations with others. And you know, and this is one of the things that I think makes it such a valuable book for students to read. You know, university students who are who are so busy thinking about their futures and thinking about how they're going to get to a place where they can be comfortable in the world and secure. To ask them to think about really what kind of trap are you setting for yourself? And really, who would you be? Who would you be if you gave up your commitment to your possessions, to your technology, to your plans, your career goals? What would be left of you? And what kind of relationships would you have with others? What would you gain if you could do something like what Thoreau did? And it's very discomforting for for many students to encounter this. Well, and the, the answer he wants to give, he says, I try to live deliberately. Right. And he says, that's a very hard thing to do because we are constantly pulled in all sorts of directions. And so we don't live deliberately. We live according to what we think we have to do. So what you just said, if you have a big house, you're going to worry about what's going on in all the other rooms. Is someone in there? Someone not in there? Are my possessions safe? Are they properly cared for, et cetera, et cetera? You have all these worries inside this house that you built and you're so proud of. Or he says, you wake up from a 30-minute nap and you say, what happened? And you want to know what the news is. So you go on Twitter and he right. prefigures all of this. And he says, people obsessed with the news as if there's anything new ever in the world when they don't even know what's new in themselves. Yeah. So this is the one part where he sort of helps students to say, what do you want to be? Who do you want to be? And the other metaphor he uses throughout, and it's not just a metaphor, he says, you would be awake. He says he almost never, and this is your work, so you've written a book on sleep and how sleep was, you said you bundled into a parcel in the 19th century. (laughs) And I like this expression. He says, we're not really awake. We sort of stumble through life because we're not really sleeping. And this is a theme that you said in your third reading, you kind of discovered in Walden that you came back the third time, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, I was teaching two classes at the same time. The first one was a class, I was just starting to pick at this idea of sleep as something that was historically contingent, not constructed. We all need to sleep, which there's a biological necessity. But the expectations that we bring to sleep and the values that we ascribe to it change dramatically over time and in different societies. And I was teaching a course with a neurologist on the science and culture of sleep. We were trying to understand the importance of sleep to the species biologically, the different functions, the different mechanisms, the different aspects of sleep. 
And then also to think about sleep in the world. How do people in societies organize themselves around the problem that for roughly a third of each day, everybody has to shut down? How do you do it? Where do they go? How do you make them safe? What time of day? Should people do it alone? Should they do it with others? All these kinds of questions were thrown open to me. At the same time, I was teaching an American literature survey and had assigned Walden. And I was reading through it with new eyes and was just struck by the pervasiveness of the sleep meme in Walden. I mean, almost every chapter is full of imagery about sleep and waking. There's a couple of really key passages, and I think we'll put some into the podcast. We'll read them after. There's one right before where he says, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. And there he says, the morning, which is the most memorable season of the day, is the awakening hour. Little is to be expected of that day if it can be called a day to which we are not awakened by our genius, but by the mechanical nudgings of some servitor are not awakened by our own newly acquired force and aspirations from within, accompanied by the undulations of celestial music instead of factory bells and a fragrance filling the air to a higher life that we fell asleep from. So what happened in this time of Thoreau that people apparently had to get up at some point. Everybody always had to get up. Farmers had to get up, peasants had to get up for millennia, but something shifted there. Yeah. Well, the most powerful thing that shifted, and you can feel this in so much of his writing, is that Concord was becoming a factory town. And as part of that transformation, railway lines were laid down to deliver goods to market and to bring raw goods to, to the factories. And the sense of time really began to shift in that most work that was done before the industrial age was patterned to daylight and darkness. And certainly there had long been professions where people had to get up in the middle of the night to bake bread or to clean out privies or things like this. But most social life was patterned to changes in light and darkness. And with the industrial economy that really grew in that part of the world in the very years that Thoreau was writing this book, the rhythms changed and became more standardized and abstract in a way. That eight o'clock means something different in winter than it does in summer, but not to the factory owner, right? And when he talks about being awakened by your own genius, rather than by a mechanical servitor or a factory bell. He's talking about something that we all experience as a very common feature of contemporary life, which is that we have to put ourselves on a rhythm to serve something else, whether it's the educational schedule or the workday or our commute or hopping on a bus or a train to get where we're going. And the idea of keeping our bodies in sync with these cyclical changes of day to night and season to season it is irrelevant for most of us. And he was really tracking that in his, in his writing. You know, in terms of sleep, there are basically two things, two systems that govern our sleep as biological creatures. The first is called a homeostatic system, which is basically like a hydraulic system of sleep. The longer you stay up, the more tired you're going to get. And that runs more or less independent of light and darkness. But we also have a circadian system, which is sometimes at odds with the homeostatic system. The circadian system is the one where we sense inside of us what time it is, even if we don't have a clock or some other kind of measuring device. So one thing you could say that was happening to time in Thoreau's world and has really sort of gotten out of hand today 
is that the circadian system has become increasingly irrelevant to governing how we sleep and wake. And Thoreau's writing, he's so interested in cyclical patterns of time. You can always tell when he's describing something what time of day it is that he's describing it and usually what season it is. At the very level of the image or the sound that he's recording, time is baked in. And it's not factory time. It's not railroad time. It's not the time of the alarm clock. And he worked in his family's pencil factory. You write in your book about the way he was raised and grew up when he was a young boy. And because it actually really falls in the middle of his kind of writing life that these shifts happened for, for people. Yeah. Exactly. When he's a little boy, it's very different from when he's an adult, how this is organized. In his early years, he grew up in and around Boston. His father bounced around from job to job. But by the time he was about four or five years old, his father got onto a new scheme, which was with his brother-in-law to open a pencil factory in Concord, Mass. And it became fairly successful and was part of the first wave of industrialization of that town, which had been sort of a trading post for decades before. And so, you know, on the first level, it introduced into Thoreau's world a kind of sonic change, right? The sound of the factories, the clatter of people coming and going and delivering things. As the railroad tracks were laid down in the years leading up to Thoreau's writing Walden, there were new kinds of sonic changes. There's so many passages in this book about the iron horse stampeding through the forest and the shrill cry and the, the great rumble of the machinery waking people up at odd hours and throwing them out of bed. So a different kind of sonic environment that you could imagine would change people's patterns of rest and waking. But as new factories are made, sawmills, paper mills, pencil factories dotting the landscape, people are really kind of adjusting their very basic daily rhythms to line up with those of the new economic order. And you talked also about a new idea of health and regimens of how people educate their children. So you say there's something happening in the Thoreau family where he and his brother, they sleep together in the same trundle bed for quite a long time with the parents in the room. But then at this moment, Americans are expanding their space and they... Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. So in the Thoreau household as he was growing up, They weren't wealthy. They became wealthier as the older he got. But as a young boy, they often took in boarders. So there were people coming and going, oftentimes factory workers who were moving to town. It was a crowded house and sometimes a noisy house. And there really was no privacy. He shared a bed with his brother, John, who was a couple of years older than he was. They became inseparable. I mean, absolutely inseparable. And his first book, which he wrote while he was at Walden, Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, is dedicated to John, who died a year after Thoreau took a trip with him down these rivers. It was his first kind of literary adventure and really is the story of their intimacy, as well as a story of his own, you know, exploration of nature and the writing life. So he had this experience of sleep being intensely social, right? First with his brother, but in a broader sense that there was no space in that house where people were alone. And then, you know, and this accords with long history of sleep in Europe and North America, the idea that everybody is going to have their own room, a place to go off in private and shut down and kind of close off, you know, their sensory environment from any kind of intrusion, be absolutely impossible for most of history. 
you have large families and small houses. I'm trying to make sense of something really I find kind of complicated. So he removes himself from society. But as you said, it's a very social book. He talks a lot about the people who preceded him, who inhabited this land, who still comes there, who doesn't quite belong. And then, as you're saying, people became more separate, isolated. They slept in their own room. You train your kids to be alone. Everybody who's raising kids goes through that. And you have to convince your children it's good for them to be alone in a dark room at night without you for eight yeah. or ten hours. Most kids don't find that intuitively true. <laughs> so <No. they> have <laughs> you have to, to work pretty hard at it. You have to work pretty hard, but you also consider it a bad parent if you don't. And then in Melville, in Moby Dick, there's a very famous scene of them all sleeping in this big bed. And there's this whole conversation where the children should sleep in the bed. So this is a topic whether intimacy and community are overlapping, what kind of bodies can be next to each other, how it's regulated. I'm trying to make sense of Thoreau goes to this little house and removes himself, but it's not to gain separateness, but to actually be more truly connected during his waking hours. Right. And it is sort of paradoxical because Walden becomes in a way an image of being isolated. And it is kind of iconic text about individualism and finding your own path. Like the beat um, of a different drummer metaphor, which is very exactly. important. Right. And in one sense, his sleep patterns do support that idea. Yeah. But I think in a different way, he didn't go there really to isolate himself. When you think about the image of how we're supposed to sleep now, right? What is a standard mode of sleeping? You're in a climate-controlled room. It's quiet. You've probably got room-darkening shades to keep the light out. You've got an alarm clock to get you up in the morning. It's a very sterile sealed off environment. And it's true that in Walden, Thoreau slept alone. And it was important for him to have a certain distance from his neighbors. But in another sense, he wasn't alone at all. And he writes very rapturously about all of the sounds that he would hear in the middle of the night and sometimes take moonlit walks and just and just listen to what was happening around him. There is something in the way he slept, the way he experienced those twilight spaces between sleeping and waking that opened him out onto his world rather than close him off from it. And I think that's what mm -hmm. makes it feel like a challenge or a kind of affront to the way we're supposed to get the job done. Well, and I think the book is supposed to be an affront to society. The book is not supposed to be easy. It wasn't meant to be nice. It was critically well-reviewed, but not a big success. And the late philosopher Stanley Cavell had said, it's a book where every word written was truly meant. And Cavell, who wrote then a book called Must We Mean What We Say, actually really read this book and said he means every single word because he either tried it and failed or succeeded, but he tested everything and it was based on his own at least attempt to either understand it or to do it. And those are two related things. They're not separate. He wasn't just thinking about stuff but he was actually doing it, and he sometimes failed. And the metaphor of sleep is interesting. That For you, it's not a metaphor. In your work, you looked at how do people really actually sleep. And right. Thoreau said, if we really slept, then we wouldn't be constantly asleep. And he has this other famous line, to be awake is to be alive, yet I never yet met a man who was quite awake. Right. And the book is meant to wake you up, right, from this slumber that we're in because there's so many things we have to think about all the time. 
So I think the book is also a weird philosophical book to take you out of philosophy, take you out of thinking and overthinking and say, just, if you wouldn't be thinking about having to sleep eight hours, you'd probably sleep better. Maybe <laughs> you sleep four, you'd sleep four hours maybe, right? But you would maybe then actually wake up rather than getting all worked up and stressed out to sleep your six to eight hours and have your alarm clock wake you up. Yeah, and he really means it when he says one of the advantages to living this way is that I could wake up when I felt like it, and I could stay up as late as I wanted listening to the sound of the bullfrogs and the crickets, and and then when I got up in the morning, I could just stand in the doorway and listen and watch, and sometimes I would do that for hours and not do anything. He says he spent the whole morning, and then it was evening, and he grew like the corn at night. <laughs> right, he grew like the corn, and you could hear the corn, right? right? One of the challenges to reading the book, I think going back to the Cavell line about that he meant every word he said, is that... There is a literalness to it yeah. that is kind of startling. And that's how I treated sleep and waking in the book. It's so often read as metaphorical that you're trying to awaken to a higher consciousness and that slumber is about the somnolence or the kind of unthinking quality of his country. And it certainly is all of those things. But he's also really interested in sleeping and waking. And he writes about how when he goes into town, everybody is sort of jacked up on coffee so that they can stay productive throughout the day. And that they're hearing this, the cries of newsboys at night screaming the latest headlines. And, and they're just all thrown off kilter by overstimulation in town. And then they're unable to really, to really unwind. And that's something very contemporary about the book. You alluded to a passage earlier in which he says, you know, that he met a man who demanded every time he took a nap after dinner that he'd be woken up every half hour and somebody would tell him what the latest news was. And the image in my mind is of the hand reaching out for the smartphone and checking the social media status update or the latest the latest headlines or stock market prices. He really was living in a period of information overload, and he was writing about the effects that this had on the body and treating the body as a natural organism that had its own rhythms, its own way of proceeding through time that needed to be respected and understood. I think when you just said he he had the luxury to get up when he wanted to get up and he went to sleep when he went to sleep. And people would say, well, I can't do that. I have all these other things I have to attend to. And he says, is the other option truly so good? And secondly, is it truly necessary? And he says, you could design your life differently. I think that's what that book opens up. He says, so I wake up when I want to. It's not going to be your Walden. You're not going to live my life. And he steps out of this book and out of this period, says, I had other lives to live. He doesn't say, this is the key to happiness to be a hermit in the woods. No. And maybe not everybody can find his own Walden wherever they want. But if people say, well, I have to get up in the morning. I can't do this kind of thing. Thoreau says, what are you doing when you get up? And yeah. as you just said, most people look at Twitter or the news or some video or something. Then they, he said, when they douse coffee on their morning. So they, <laughs> they kind of drown their own morning. And... They don't do anything that they want to do, but they do all these things they have to do. And this is the mistake we make. He said, as Americans, we have this moment to think we want to do other things. And it's very concrete. It's very literal. He talks about the clothes we wore. And he says, we all think about what clothes we wore, what other people think, what was the fashion, what's this? We're old clothes, but with a renewed heart or a renewed spirit. Or buy new clothes if you really think you want these clothes. Yeah. The word he uses several times is deliberateness. 
And I think that is part of what the book forces upon us is deliberateness, the sense that, again, you know, I'm not going to be a tool of my tool. I'm going to be the person who, if I'm using a tool, I have very clearly in mind what I want to accomplish with it. And tool in that sense can mean all sorts of things, technology, mm-hmm. media, money, that we want to be deliberate about how and when we're doing it. And we need to step away from it in order to really understand how it can serve us rather than the other way around. Stepping away is not stepping, what you said earlier, not a retreat withdrawal from the world onto a velvet pillow where I meditate and disdain the hustle and bustle of this trivial loud century. But you retreat into practice or action, which is, I think, why the book is such a strange book for philosophers, because it doesn't go into then meta-philosophy. He says, our life is frittered away by detail. So let's not look at all the details. But the answer is not to become detached from details and disdain that and say, you are worried about your phones and your coffee and I'm a better person. I'm actually even more immersed. I'm actually going to make myself something to drink this morning and it'll take me a half an hour to get it done. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, he's also been a sort of patron saint of the slow food movement and so on, right? But something else I wanted to say about that is it's important also not to think about this work as a retreat or as a kind of relinquishing of his work. I mean, this was two years in the woods where he was working. He wrote his first book, Week on the Conquered Merrimack Rivers, and all of that note-taking, all of the journal-keeping went toward producing Walden. He went there in part to write, and he wrote. He made his literary career out of this experiment. So, in a sense, when we talk about the practicalness of it, the practical objective of these two years was to get some work out there. He really hadn't made a name for himself at all in the literary world before. The other thing that happened to him while he was there, and he alludes to it very briefly, is he got thrown in jail for not paying his taxes. And he mentions it in one sentence and then wrote a famous essay about it. And he didn't pay his taxes because? Because the taxes went to support the raising of an army to fight the Mexican War, which he felt was a land grab that would expand the power of the slaveholders. Right. It is interesting to think about all the careful and gentle and sort of non-purposive description that's going on in this work and the immersion of himself in a natural world. What is the relation between that and his political activism, which is simultaneous? And I think that's very hard for students and philosophers both to figure out there are sentences in there and you really get kind of lost. But then, as Cavell said, every word is meant. So we shouldn't be distracted by details, but he focuses on the smallest, most obscure little things on a leaf or on an ant or on a turtle dove. Or And then he says his famous sentence, I once lost a hound and a turtle dove. And people don't know what that means. And it may mean I have lost myself and I'm searching and I'm taking you on this journey to find it. And then when you just mentioned he got arrested, he was thrown in jail for a day, someone bailed him out. He got arrested after he took a public stance against the government's raising this army for the Mexican war. So not paying your taxes is one thing. Taking a position in public, which would change other people's opinions, that is another thing. So those are connected for him. It wasn't just, I'm going to be passive out there, refuse to pay my taxes and obey the government. Yeah. Because there's a moment you can you can take a sentence from that book and say, he's going to allow the renegade, ultra-individualistic Americans to say, I refuse to accept this government. 
Right. And I think that for Thoreau, the act of setting himself aside from what he called the restless, nervous, bustling 19th century was not to reject politics or his role in the society. It was to understand it more clearly. And that's that's really one of the important lessons of the book is that it is a piece of connected criticism where he is trying to gain a purchase, a view that he can't have while he's immersed in the rhythms of 19th century life. He needs to slow down, to stop, to stand aside, to observe as carefully as he can to really understand not who he is in the abstract, but who he is in relation to his natural world, which he sees changing. We haven't really talked about the environmental aspect of the book, but but also to understand his true obligations to other people. And it is an environmental work. We talked at the beginning about its sort of strange second life as climate science data, the work that he was doing while he was there. But even in the pages of Walden and his first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, he's very attuned to how the natural systems that sustain life are changing and being altered. And he writes about the men coming through in the winter to cut up the ice and bring it to market. And he also writes about how some of the groves around Walden are disappearing. And he says, how will the birds sing when their groves are cut down? Earlier, when he'd been rowing up the Concord and Merrimack Rivers as the dams were being built to power the mills, he wrote about the fact that when he was a boy, he could go salmon fishing in these streams. Now there were no more salmon. He said, who will hear when the fish cry? So there is this real sense that the natural world that he is trying to lovingly chronicle is being changed by industrialization in a sense that we've only seen the effects of that more strongly in the subsequent decades. So it's a political work in a lot of different ways, in quiet ways and also in very large-scale ways. I think he's really useful as an example of what's today called eco-writing or eco-criticism, eco-fiction. There's something that he does which is very American, and this is also Stanley Cavello says, America means losing the God of the fathers. There's no authority, no overarching ultimate authority. We believe in the Constitution. We believe in all sorts of things. We have these myths of the founding fathers, but we do not believe in an absolute transcendent authority because we're practical beings. We're making a new world with all the super complicated issues that they are native inhabitants who Thoreau recognizes. But he doesn't take nature the way the romantics did and said, the truth is revealed in nature itself. He doesn't look at the wood stand in front of them and said, the sublime is so awesome and I'm inspired. He says, I'm going to take an axe and cut down some of these trees and build myself a cabin. But in a way to understand what this does in this system. So it's not nature with a capital N as the God is revealed or something or the truth of my being, but rather this is what I engage with and if human beings engage with it too much, it changes the entire balance. Yeah, he compares the townspeople in Concord to ducks and geese making, you know, speaking their own kind of language. And I think in a very real sense, he thinks of himself as an animal. And he writes about his own kind of primal instincts, often has a kind of aggressive feeling that he has no idea where it comes from when he encounters a woodchuck who's trying to, to eat his beans. And he talks about, you know, wanting to He'll kill it, and then he says, should I cook it or should I just eat it raw, right? And where does this come from? He's a vegetarian at this point. And sort of understanding himself as part of this natural system that he's trying to observe. Philosophically, he's really rejecting a kind of dualism of humans and nature, of self and other, 
there's a kind of leakiness and porousness to his identity that's really remarkable, even while there's this strong sense of I and individualism that the book promotes. And the dualism is maybe cut or kind of avoided by what you said earlier, as he's a metonymic thinker. So somehow he observes nature, he really takes you into this space, and then he's, within a half a sentence, he's actually reflecting on the interior of his own mind and how capacious it is. He said, we do not need to go to Europe or to Africa. We have undiscovered continents within us. In within one sentence, he goes from the outside to the inside. and Because he sees no difference. And, and the language, really the language yeah. allows us to actually do that as well. And it's the invention of a new English also that doesn't have those distinctions as solidly. That, That's right. And it's a strange book because people read initially, oh, it's a celebration of nature. And then he would say, emancipation freedom will not be found in nature. It will only be found in us, including the part you just said, that he wants to kill and devour this woodchuck raw because it ate his beans. There are a lot of dead woodchucks in this book, although he's a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> and so this... That, the it's a very sad book from the point of view of the woodchuck. From the point of the yeah. woodchuck, not a sad book, but he does become <laughs> a vegetarian ultimately, which is also an interesting book at that moment in 1850s America. It's 150 years later, how many billions of animals have we slaughtered so far? And that this is resonating today with people... But in the language, he has a way of combining or crossing these things, which are not just metaphors for him. Right. right. It's not a metaphor to say, I have a continent undiscovered inside of me. He actually really acts on that. And he says, it can be cultivated, become something new for me, a new way of thinking. Yeah. So when you read the book the third time, your students, do they, <laughs> did you find a way to actually not let them have your first experience to say, I have no idea what this book is about. It's just so confusing. And I think the book is a bit strange to get in when you read about how many nails he bought and where the timber came from and who he paid to lug it over there. And I think it's a strange book to encounter in a literature or philosophy class, maybe in a business school, the first chapter works well. You know, I think actually my students have an easier time with it than I did, even the first two times I read it. Because whether they acknowledge it or not, most of them are pretty uncomfortable with what technology is doing to their lives. And if for no other reason than they've grown up with constant refrain of their parents telling them, you know, put your phone down and feeling a feeling of guilt that they can't and knowing that there's something weird about it. And they see the lost time that, you know, the students are, they're frustrated by their relationship to technology. And so when I present this book to them and I start with the question of, what would your life be like if you gave up not just your phone, but your computer, if you didn't look at screens for two years and two you didn't go to a shopping mall? Two years. How about two days? Yeah, two days. I've actually done a little experimenting with that because I used to ask them to take a day to unplug and just record their thoughts. They could reflect on reading Walden or they could just record their thoughts in a journal and nobody could ever do it. I never had one student who could do it for a day. So I then I experimented with different time frames, and eventually I came up with the idea that what I would do is ask them how long they thought they could go. They could feed themselves in the student dining hall, but they were not to go shopping. They weren't to study or do their calculus homework. They could read this book or another book that maybe wasn't assigned. How long could they go? Without getting in a car, a bus, watching a, something on a screen, how long could they go? And most of them say, I think I could go 
six hours, four hours. And it shouldn't be during the time when they ordinarily sleep. And six hours is an enormous challenge for them, an enormous challenge. Some of them write about losing their minds in the first hour or so, the cravings, the, you know, really the physical symptoms of letting go of an addiction. So it's, in that sense, it's an easier sell. The experiment to them is something quite heroic. But that's actually great to connect it to your own bodily responses. It's not an intellectual book in the sense of read Walden and start thinking about how to live your life from the outside of it. It's actually say, live the next six hours without doing one thing that you don't even believe is so great for you. And then if you're feeling it bodily, I think this book is so interesting in that way that it is a book about a body in the environment and how he responds to cold and warm and daylight and sleep and waking. And it's then becomes a philosophical book because this is how we live. Right. Right. Well, then the second part of the assignment is to think about what you gain and what you miss when you are not doing this as part of your either daily practice or even just periodically. Then the students see it very clearly. They, they know what they're missing. <laughs> they know how hard it is to get that. And yet, like all of us, they're stuck. Here we are talking by Skype. Right. What are you going to do in an hour, Uli? Are you going to have your phone nearby? Of course, I have my phone turned Why? off and it's one hour. It's, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to have it turned off. There's a third to last sentence. The light which puts out our eyes is darkness to us. It's a very weird double negative. The light that puts out our eyes, which is either the sun or the dawn and things that we want to absorb and see, it's darkness because we don't see anything. We get all these things, we take it in, but we don't perceive it at all. So there is a way for him to see within our sight. We are blinding yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And our addiction to light on a very literal level, you know, gas lamps lighting up cities and amusement palaces and factory floors and so on, and the interiors of middle-class homes, he says is putting out our eyes. That when we don't allow ourselves darkness... We're forgetting how to see. And I think, again, through the lens of time, that's really more of a profound insight now than it was in the 1850s. Just that, you know, we are surrounded by light-emitting devices and objects. And to experience darkness as a kind of sight is something that's, that's scary for young people. He has this amazing passage walking home through the woods, and he says he never lost his way he would feel his way between trees and it's this incredible experience of darkness that we never have because of light pollution etc and this, there's almost no spaces that are dark and yeah he says that his, his fingertips could see for him and that it was almost as if he found his way he had no idea where he was going but somehow his fingers feeling the trees he hadn't planted in advance led him home and he said it was really like you know the way your hand would reach your mouth in the dark right and it's a really multi-sensory book, something that is just full of sound and imagery and haptic sense of touching things. There's not a lot of tasting in it. He does describe some of the food he ate, but one of my favorite essays of Thoreau's is Wild Apples, which has a passage where he's describing, he says, you know, the apple was so tart, it would set a squirrel's teeth on edge and make a jay scream. And you really have this sense that he's got these hyperactive sensors all over his body, and he just has this gift for, for turning them into words. Right. But I like that it make a Jay scream because it gives meaning to the Jay just screaming. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> a sour apple. 
this fluctuation between a metaphor and literalism, the, the light that puts out our eyes is darkness to us. And then it's a different kind of darkness. It's philosophy from Socrates on knowing your own ignorance and knowing you're ignorant, not that you're going to reveal and enlighten yourself and find knowledge, but some things you know you will not know. That's already a step in some direction. I have this friend, a philosopher, Irad Kimi, at the University of Chicago, and he said the 19th century is the age of neon agnosticism, which is <laughs> anachronistic because it's not neon. But he said, as soon as we have electric light, we lose our sense of darkness, which is we lose our sense of awe in the divine. We, right. we can banish that from our world and we lose something. Yeah, well, we lose the inner eye, which is an eye cast into our own darkness. And I think that's what Thoreau's gesturing toward at the end. Right. So you would recommend to our listeners to try a very short period without devices and after they turn off this podcast to go silent and dark for yeah. brief moments, right? Yeah. Yeah, and see what it feels like. Or maybe an uncomfortably long moment. Think about what would be a manageable amount of time to do that and then do it for two hours longer. <laughs> I'm going to ask you what everybody asks you, and I know you can't answer this question. So what's your tip to get a better sleep? Mm. My tip to get a better night's sleep is to – I don't have one particular tip, but I think it's to think about critically about why you feel your sleep is wrong and what is really contributing to the dissatisfaction that you have with sleep in your life. Is it something internal to your body or is it about the way you've set up your life and the place that you found for sleep within it? And if that's the problem, then think about changing that relationship. Wow. Okay. <laughs> One of my favorite writers is Rilke's admonition mm. at the end of the archaic torso poem, you must change your life. <laughs> yeah. And then you may get a better night's sleep, right? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, you know, sleeping and waking, those are the only two parts of life we have. And if we only focus on one of them, we're not really going to get the job done. I want to thank you for joining me today. It's really been a pleasure. And I will put a link on uh, your other books. I read the book on Arnhem and the invention of this fantasy that Washington's nurse made, lived, and <laughs> You resurrected a story of this African-American woman in the 19th century. It's a really wonderful book, I thought. Very, very powerful and really beautifully told that someone comes to life who really had been used, manipulated and into a spectacle. And to a Wild Night, of course, so people can maybe find another way of, without having to change your entire life, to get a better <laughs> night's sleep. Yeah, maybe, maybe the one recommendation I would have for getting a better night's sleep is read Walden. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. I really appreciate right. you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks very much, Julie. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.